0: You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurity inside.
1: Most organizations don't attack attacks for two to three years.
2: Why on earth is a subject like this is so important, not matter to me,
0: There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all.
1: Hi, I'm Tom Garrison, and welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. With me today is my co-host, Camille Moorhart. Hi, Camille. How are you doing today?
0: Hi, Tom. I'm doing well. It's raining, which I'm not happy about, but I will say that the leaves are just phenomenally beautiful right now in Portland.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And it's a great time of year, especially when it's not raining, the crisp autumn days with the trees. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Yes. So today I thought it would be good to think about the person aspect or the human aspect of cybersecurity, because we talk a lot about technology and what are some of the trends going on, but At the end of the day, there's always a human involved, and it feels like we haven't explored that area enough in our previous episodes.
0: Yeah, I think we've had some really good conversations around the human element and kind of how to look at that. But the person that we talked to today was trained by the NSA and advised the last administration on using techniques in AI to identify certain patterns that were likely to be human trafficking that they could go investigate, for example. So he really focused on the human element and using cybersecurity to get to the bottom of that. It's
1: a very interesting conversation to understand how do you use the techniques when it comes to things like human trafficking and so forth. And he's got a really interesting background as well, so. Why don't we just jump straight to it? What do you say?
0: Yeah, it sounds good.
1: Today's guest is Rick Jordan, founder and CEO of Reach Out Technology. Over the past 20 years, Rick has been trained by the CIA and NSA, established the Geek Squad as the U.S. B2B brand you know today, served as managing partner and director at ISA, a private security agency and developed advanced cybersecurity programs used by countless organizations across the nation. Today, we'll be discussing the human element of cybersecurity, what it is, why it's important, and how you can use it to your advantage. So welcome to the podcast, Rick.
2: Tom and Camille, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited for our conversation.
1: You worked with CIA and NSA. Can you tell us about that?
2: I was trained as a civilian by those two organizations. The NSA was hacking and that was a little bit more recently as far as ethical hacking go and also being trained in the different types of threat actors that exist and different AI initiatives that exist, even to where I was in the White House last year consulting the previous administration on their AI policy and border protection around that. And I'm not talking physical build the wall border protection, I'm talking AI-based protection against human trafficking because that's a passion of mine too, that's a cause that I'm really deeply rooted in as far as how I care so much for human life. And the CIA was surveillance and elicitation. Actually being able to monitor humans' behaviors, environments, and elicitation is being able to extract any piece of information out of anybody or anything that you need to in order to get the job done. I'm sure you can imagine now after hearing that background, how that equates the human element in cybersecurity, especially with the threat actor profile, one of the main profiles being insider threats.
1: That's actually a great lead-in to our topic for today.
0: I'm scared. I'm going to let we, Tom take the rest of this one. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really... I, no, what, should we talk about my first job? My first job was McDonald's. <laughs> you know, I ended up being a shift manager there. <laughs> yeah, well. well, that could be scary in its
1: own right. But no, so back I to play
2: baseball for nine years. <laughs> there
1: you go. So back to the human element of cybersecurity. Yeah. So let's start by just talking about, I think most people can sort of string the words together and say they sort of basically understand what that means. But what in your professional background, what does the human element of cybersecurity mean?
2: I was reading in the journal about the new ways that hackers gain access. And it says that, hey, these are the new ways, but it's really the old ways. This article was talking about how hackers gain access to networks because if you think of the different profiles some of them are nation states and their motivations are typically geopolitical meaning they're trying to destabilize another nation the the economics or the the geography if they want to overtake it in some way but if you look at e-crime groups think about like pablo escobar i always equate hackers to like pablo escobar because of all these like cloaked people in hoods that you see you when you type in dark web and look at the images on google search that's not what the freaking hackers look like you know they look like you and me and when i speak from stages and i throw up like a a family from like sri lanka or something like that from getty images saying that this is your typical hacker just like pablo escobar had a freaking family when he was dealing with cocaine it's for monetary gain that's their motivation and Just like you and I, just like Intel as a business, just like Reach Out as a business, a for-profit business, so are they. And in order to develop new products, Intel has to do what? R&D, right? You guys have a huge portion of your budget towards R&D. Well, eCrime groups do the same freaking thing. They have to devote money aside to find out where these zero-day attacks can happen, where these back doors can be punctured. It's expensive to try to hack into these things just brute force nowadays, and the R&D is just the costs are skyrocketing for these e-crime groups, for the hackers. They could spend $5 million, $6 million to find that backdoor when it's a lot less money to pay the unhappy employee sitting within Intel to give you access to their systems, give you their credentials in order to get in. This just happened with AT&T a little bit ago with this dude that was unlocking phones, unlocking iPhones for e-crime groups across the seas. They were charging 200 bucks a pop to unlock phones, but this was an internal employee within AT&T that gave access to the systems, to these hackers for profits. And these companies are paying, these e-crime, they're actually businesses, right? That's why I call them companies, are paying up to $100,000 now for an employee's credentials. For their usernames and passwords that's a lot cheaper than five and six million
0: is your intervention coming then with why is it that an employee has an ability to unlock somebody's credentials or is your intervention coming with the hacker level
2: that's a great point and it really you can look at it from two different ways because they can gain access that way that's not the back door anymore for cybersecurity. the human element really is the front door it's somebody that's in there saying like hey come on into my house I might have back taxes that I owe. I might have some credit card debt that I need to pay off. And Intel hasn't been making me too happy these days because uh, maybe they want me to come back to the office. I don't know. I'm just making this stuff up right now. These are discontent employees for whatever reason. But usually their discontent doesn't really have to deal with the place that they work. It has to deal with external factors that are pressing in on them. And because of where they work, and now they're contacted by a hacker, an e-crime group, now they see an easy financial way out, or almost like wiping the slate clean of their debts, of maybe back child support taxes, you know, maybe it's a medical bill they got, whatever it is. But because of their discontent in life, they see this opportunity. So Camille, to answer your question, where's the intervention? Where's the mitigation in something like this? It has to be on both sides. You have to have things in place within an organization to protect against the human elements and then the technical part of it has to deal with the hackers on the outside, right? So when you're inside an organization trying to protect yourself against the people that are there, that's the human elements. Outside the external forces, the e ecregers, the nation states, all of that, that's where a lot of the tech can come into play with AI, with any new security solutions we have coming out. I mean, all the way back to traditional firewalls, all of those things. That's where most of the technological advances exist. But there's a blending that has to take place for the mitigation within the organization.
1: You can't really control what's going on in people's lives outside of work. Correct. Yeah. So there's that element, which means the way to protect yourself as a company is guarding against what rights do people have within their accounts. So if their account is somehow compromised, you don't have the full keys to the kingdom just because Tom was somehow swayed over to give his credentials over. So there's that element. It seems like that's a similar sort of mitigation for even the unwitting employees that clicks on something that they weren't supposed to. And now all of a sudden their account is compromised. Either way, their account is compromised, either knowingly or unknowingly. Make sure that that person's account can't do significant amount of damage or more than the minimal amount that's possible.
2: Tom, you're right on, man. And this isn't really super technical either, is it? I love this aspect of cybersecurity because a lot of it comes down to common sense. I was this way, man. I was the engineer. I was a very linear thinker. I cut my teeth in this industry working for Merrill Lynch. I deployed 120,000 workstations, 20,000 servers to all their branch offices across the whole U.S. That was my first experience within cybersecurity was implementing the security policies. I have the engineer chops, but engineer thinking in cybersecurity is very linear, isn't it? Whereas common sense kind of lives all the way out here. (laughs) It's more abstract thoughts that stink sometimes because there's a lot of pressure on engineers or CISOs or whoever to take a look at what's right in front of them, almost forcing that tunnel vision. And when you're in cybersecurity, that will cost you. You can't just focus on this one thing because you have to start trying to put yourself in everyone else's shoes and saying, what's the common sense here? If this was like my kid, what would I do to protect it?
1: There's an element of common sense where occasionally it comes across and you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. But I think more often than not, people absolutely think about it. But it's work. It takes (laughs) (laughs) more work to set up permissions in a way that the person only has the minimum amount of permissions they need to get their job done. It's much easier to say, you know what? I don't want to have to deal with that. Let's just make permissions easier, maybe more open- So that I don't have to manage these things as people change their job. Now I have to change their permission. I just don't want to do that work. That sort of, well, I'll call it laziness, even though it's not really laziness, it's complexity. That amount of complexity is something that gets companies in trouble because they just don't want to have to do the work.
0: Well, you're also looking at the IT side versus, say, training your engineers. Because most corporations, you have IT who's dealing with that protection or some version of a group like IT, that's dealing with product security within the company, who's maybe working on those permissions. But then you have this other entire element within a company, which is everybody who's designing and building product. And they're trained to develop for functional use cases. They're not necessarily trained, at least out of the gate, to think about abuse cases. They're following the marketing direction to code something that will perform as it's intended to perform. But what about all of the other things that somebody might be able to do? Unless you make them aware of that and even what threats are out there, best intentions won't help to be the best engineer on the planet there doing the perfect work. But if it's not taking into account the unknown and the threats, then it won't be included.
2: The stress on the security engineers too this past year and a half has been horrible because Camille, what you're talking about here is trying to allow business to continue at a reasonably acceptable pace without having to lock down everything that slows down that production schedule. And we saw that a lot with work from home or work from anywhere this past year and a half with the pandemic is there was a lot of lacks in security because everyone had to move so fast at the beginning of this. And when they moved into their homes, all of a sudden it was, Well, you have corporations with 1,000, 10,000 employees, and all of a sudden, everybody has to work from home, and you have the IT team, the poor IT team. Oh, my Lord. A lot of alcohol probably was consumed last year, too, by our industry. These guys and girls were trying to figure out the best way that they possibly could to where it just became, hey, these corporations did not have budget, of course, set aside for this to deploy company-owned assets, I'm talking laptops, tablets, desktops, whatever, to go in everybody's home to continue to work. They just said, use your own stuff from now because we're figuring this out and OIT do the best that you can. But then there was this balance back and forth that I saw. I saw the frustration in our industry from the security professionals and the IT professionals, but then I saw the frustration from the executives too. Because it was this thing, it's like the executive's like, we still have to keep business flowing. We have to keep to our production schedules. We have to meet our deadlines. We have to stay within our financial budgets that we have. And the IT team is kind of like throwing their hands up in the air and it's like, well, you got to (laughs) choose.
1: We're sort of circling a bit of the problem. So we understand the complexity and how challenging that is. But part of the introduction when we first started was how can we use this to our advantage. In your line of work, Rick, what do you see that works well where you can take this human element and make it an advantage for companies?
2: It's really awesome because there's tech tools and then there's the human, as I was talking about blending them together. You can't have the human element without the tech and you can't have the tech without the human elements. That's one thing that I've learned over the past decade and if you look at things that are out there right now for, let's say, employee productivity behavioral monitoring, usually those, at least when they came out, it was like big brother, big sister kind of looking over your shoulder. There was a lot of pushback against them because what, my employer's going to spy on me now, everything that I'm doing. And that was probably what it was at the onset. No joke. Let's just call it what it was employers and even managed service providers in my space would try to sell this based on fear, which I hate by the way, saying, you don't know what they're doing at their desk. They're on Facebook all day. They're watching Netflix, you know, or God forbid they're on Pornhub all day long, whatever. They're not getting the job done. And it was sold based on fear. But then if you flip it around and say, you know what, these are good tools. And then we have real human beings that take a look at this because we can identify where your people are stuck where they get frustrated in their jobs, where they can't proceed forward and identify a business process problem. That's the human element because if they're not as frustrated in their jobs, they're not going to become that discontent threat actor of an insider threat. If they're paid well, if they're taken care of and they feel like they're contributing to something bigger than themselves, And something that was built upon a cybersecurity perspective and platform is now saying, hey, we want to actually help you do your job better. Imagine if we can help salespeople close 20% more this month. Hey, their paychecks are going to go up too, because we were able to use the same tools and identify a process problem that was holding them up.
0: Are you looking for anomalies in behavior of people through their devices? Like normally when I wake up, I open Outlook. It's the first thing I do. So if that's not what I'm doing, and suddenly instead I'm exporting large files uh, to my Gmail, you might wonder... A couple of red
2: flags that go off with that, yeah.
0: You know, it might be a personal situation that I'm addressing, but it could be something else that you might want to pay more attention to. Is that the kind of thing that we're talking about here, or are we talking about process improvements? Like, I got frustrated because my Outlook crashed, and then I ended up surfing the web for two hours every time it crashed.
2: It's kind of a mixture of both of those, and you're hitting the nail on the head because there is that first element that you're talking about that is analyzed. And systems that are put into place can do this, and they can take a look at the individual, and you can set individual parameters on a single person if you want, and apply those as a template. I'm not getting technical on this, but you can say, treat everybody the same. So if that's the case, if everybody does not open outlook first thing in the morning, then there's a problem with this one person. But I've seen it more successful when you take a look at business functional groups. So if I were to take a law firm, for example, you have partner attorneys, then you have associate attorneys, then you have paralegals, then you have secret legal secretaries, then you have clerks. If you take a look at the functional groups and look at the anomalies within those functional groups, the data is a lot more accurate and predictable in those ways. Because if one individual that's a paralegal, like you were saying in your example, sends out a whole crap load of information one day their data usage or their network bandwidth spiked 2000 percent over everybody else compared to their functional group that's something to where a human being would have to go in and take a look at that and analyze that data and see exactly what that data was because it could be very legitimately that the firm took on a brand new client that's this huge client, and now they have this enormous case that they're going to be trying, and this is just a natural exchange of information for case files. That's very possible. And then at that point from business process improvement, because it's the other side of it too, from an IT perspective, imagine that crossing over from just that security professional into someone that says, wow, you're doing a lot more. How can we help? It seems that you just took on a higher workload. Is this something that we can be an advocate for with with the partner attorneys and maybe get some other people to help you in your project that you're working on right now? Or maybe we can get you some better tech tools to help you with this. Or maybe we can just put in an SD-WAN or something like that and add a couple more carriers to it so you can transmit these things faster. So you're not sitting there and waiting for cloud file shares to sync for three hours. It happened in 10 minutes now. It's really both sides of this. So there's a security element to it, but there's most definitely a business process element too.
1: Have you seen cases where things like either automation or artificial intelligence, these other tools are being brought to bear for that analysis? Like in your example, you said a human is going to have to look at this and figure out what's going on. Do you see this transition towards more automation and AI to help there? Or do you think there are always going to be a human? I
2: hope there's always a human for certain circumstances. If you look at Apple and how they were just in the press recently and how they're going to be scanning iMessage content for uh, child trafficking, underage pornography, all that, that's something to where they're still having a human review it if it matches. But this is really the kind of the perfect example that you're talking about Tom is they have AI that's analyzing that message data first and then if it goes outside the boundaries of that AI there's parameters set to now a human has to take a look at it especially when you're talking something that involves a crime and really everything that we're talking about from a cybersecurity perspective today could potentially be considered criminal it depends on if it includes IP, intellectual property, then it can end up being espionage. There's been some close calls, man, I mean, for, for my team too. We've never had some big, big things go wrong, but there's been super close calls. One of them was a salesperson. You were talking about large amounts of data, right? And he was within a sales functional group, and we saw that there was a large amount of data transferred from the systems that they were using to his business asset, his laptop. So when a human went in there to analyze it, just five minutes later, that's it, just five minutes, started looking through what data that was and saw that it was customer files, financial records, and so on. And then it became a phone call to the client that said, hey, is this normal? (laughs) Is this something that this person should do? And they say, well, we don't feel that it is. And we say, okay, how about we go one step further? Because they had a fleet of company vehicles. And we said, I think we need to track this person. They had GPS on their company vehicles. Then we see that that person took that data, copied the data to a USB flash drive, and now their company vehicle was sitting in the parking lot of their largest competitor. Now we know we can easily follow the trail to what the motive was at this point and where that end game was. And this was within maybe about 20 minutes time overall from the time that the red flag was raised to the time that we tracked the individual and made the phone call to that competitor. And by this time, the attorney from our client already started to draft up a cease and desist order because this was going to be obviously internal information that was going to be leaked. And to me, that was a pretty badass response. That's a pretty short time period. But still, five minutes later, that data could have been in the hands of the competitor already. It never actually transferred.
1: That's shockingly short. That's Definitely the exception, not the rule in terms of response. Again, that
2: was still close because it happened so fast. This is a story that's in my book too because it's situational ethics because this is what happens with especially insider threats. I've seen this and that's where it's almost like it's not their fault because people are humans and they have struggles. And maybe they made bad choices to get to this point, but now they make even worse choices to try to compensate for the bad choices they made, or maybe something wasn't even their fault whatsoever. And they're just having hard times, especially after like, again, this last year, a lot of people were hit hard with the pandemic. And you see individuals, even in my industry and managed service providers, you talk about the keys of the kingdom, Tom, this can happen in my industry to where we're a target now because we have those passwords stored in systems and almost like the keys to the kingdom to all of our clients. So if there's someone in my organization that's compromised, that's a really bad day.
1: You know, Rick, there's so many things we could talk about. It feels like we just sort of started scratching the surface. But before we let you go, we do have a segment on our podcast that we like to call Fun Facts. I like it. And so yeah, I wonder is there a fun fact that you would like to share with our listeners?
2: Yes, I would love to share a fun fact. When I was 7 years old, I wanted to be a meteorologist, specifically a tornado chaser, right?
1: You were probably watching Twister. There you go. Yep. That movie freaked me out. Well, I used to live in Houston and I used yeah. to have dreams like this recurring dream where I'd be whatever be going on, I'd look out the window yeah. and there'd be a tornado <laughs> out the window.
2: Here's the fun fact, because in the US, of course, we're in the Northern hemisphere, and tornadoes will rotate in a counterclockwise direction. This is the fun fact. We see that the storms typically move from Southwest to Northeast. That's the direction that the storms will move, the supercells. In the Southern hemisphere, they move in a clockwise direction. They rotate in a clockwise direction. And the storms will typically move from Northwest to Southeast.
1: Interesting. I did not know that, and it's always the same way. It always in the northern hemisphere.
2: There's a few rare exceptions, and this is where, from the movie Twister, I don't know. This is where I geek out, right? They said, "Hey, those two cells have merged or something like that, and created this monster tornado." That was the one at the end of it. Sometimes, when that happens for a brief moment, that tornado will spin the opposite direction because of the counter rotations of these two storms that kind of merge together. But generally speaking, when they just form, it's counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere.
0: Wow,
1: that is really cool. That is very, very cool. Camille.
0: You might have noticed I turned off my camera for this because I don't want to be seen with this story. Oh boy,
2: I gotta gotta buckle up, right? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay, I'm just going to go for it anyway. So, Rick, you mentioned you did in your private security company, you guarded assets. And then, of course, my question is, what is an asset? Is that a person or a diamond? Or And you said exactly both. It took me back to a while ago, I was on a trip to Santa Barbara, and my daughter is pretty young. She's like 10. And I made the mistake of letting her read People magazine while we were checking out in the grocery line during which time she discovered that Harry and Megan lived in the town next door to Santa Barbara and demanded that we drive to to see their house. So we were like, all right, sure, we'll drive to the house. You're not going to be able to see the house. You know that's what it's going to be, a big gate. You're not going to see anything, But and probably you're not going to have the right address anyway. But we went because we wanted to see the town anyway. And when we got to the place... On the map that said it was where they lived, there was no gate, there was a little dirt road, and there was a small sign just about 20 feet in to the dirt road that said something like, premises protected by armed guards. So I was just wondering, since you were in that line of work, I guess it's a question slash fun fact. Is that kind of a common practice where you actually don't have a lock on your door? You just have a warning that's so scary that nobody would ever try? (laughs) It
2: is, and that's just a mental deterrent. It's the same principle as if you have ADT as your security company and you pop the sign in your yard, right? It just says, hey, if you're going to break in here, you're going to get caught versus come up to Prince Harry's residence, you're going to get shot. (laughs) It's It's a similar thing. So it's the first thing, and that will keep out well over 99% of people just by posting that sign. Because any private security agency, you really don't ever want to escalate things. There's so many, and a sign is one of these, there's so many de-escalation protocols that you're supposed to follow so that it never even gets there. And a sign is one of the best ways to be able to do that. You know what, I wish there was a sign that we could post for hackers getting into (laughs) into digital networks, that would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? That says, hey, if you get in here, we're going to send like a feedback signal and wipe out everything you have or something. Now I'm getting into movies again, but (laughs) that would be phenomenal. Let's come up with that, okay? Right here with Incel. All right. That's a new product. I just want to help.
1: Well, I'm going to change it up completely and I'm going back to the animal world. I have been fortunate enough to where I have people now send me some of these, which are just great. I love them. So this fun fact is that there is a moth in Madagascar that feeds exclusively on the tears of sleeping birds. When I got this, I'm like, I cannot believe this. So I did more research and it is absolutely true. The beak actually has like a hook to it. The moth will land on the bird. And then we will place that hook right underneath their eyelid. And researchers are saying now that the that they don't know if there is an anesthetic involved to try to deaden the area. Because y- you can imagine, if you're a moth, a pretty dangerous place to be is right next to a bird's beak.
2: Nah. <laughs> <And> <laughs>
1: so you better be pretty good at your
2: job. That's amazing. I think you win the prize for today, Tom. Yeah, I don't want to know. <laughs> Rick.
1: Brick. I do want to thank you on behalf of Camille and myself for coming on. It was a great topic today with security and human factor element. There's a lot there to be discovered. So thanks for the topic and thanks for the wisdom that you brought.
2: It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on.
0: Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening.
1: The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.